Hey, I'm Justin Anderson, lead pastor at Icon Church. Thanks for joining us for our series through Romans that we're calling Straight No Chaser. It is a look at the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. If you want more information, go to iconchurch.org. Hey y'all, good to see you coming from what remains of the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Uh, just kidding, but uh, excited to be here with you guys and uh, excited to keep going in the Book of Romans. Uh, there has been so much going on in our city. Uh, before we get into the text, I actually want to stop and pray for us uh, and pray for our city and all that's, uh, that's going on. So will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, you are the king. No matter how many times or in how many ways we try to declare or assert our autonomy, we cannot escape from the fact that you are the king and you are establishing your kingdom. So, Lord, we pray that the, the, the riots and the protests, the, the destruction, the pain, the, the outcry that is happening and has been happening for the last several weeks in our city would affect real systemic, legal, significant change, that we would see really positive outcomes uh, come out of this time of real pain, and that we would see the ball of justice roll forward during this time. So Jesus, we, uh, we love you, we praise you, Lord, we ask that you would open the scriptures to us so that we might be changed by them, and uh, Lord, as Paul is writing to establish this early, early multi-ethnic church, that we would be able to follow in his footsteps. So we ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the book of Romans is written contextually to, uh, if not the first, the most prominent multi-ethnic church in the early church period, right? Um, and for kind of political historical reasons, um, what was happening here is that after the church in Rome was founded, many of the Jews were forced to leave Rome and were, were kind of now gradually coming back to churches that had been led and filled with uh, mostly Gentile converts. And so there's some tension. The Jewish Christians who have held, even in the, these early, early decades of the church, had held the, the majority of the influence and the power, were now coming back to a church in Rome that was led or had been led primarily by Gentile Christians. And so that created some friction. It created some, some temptation to hierarchy that we were seeing. So Paul, in order to address this, we looked last week at those first 17 verses where multiple times, three times explicitly, a couple more times, maybe a little bit more implicitly, he has told us that his project by writing Romans, one of the primary projects, is to help this multi-ethnic church think of themselves as one church, right? So in order to do that, he starts with the gospel and lays that gospel foundation. We talked last week about how implicit in the good news of the gospel is also a diagnosis of our problem. Namely, that we are so royally screwed up that God had to send his son to die in order to redeem us back to him and to give us any hope of life, both at this time and everlasting, right? So in verses 16 and 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live 
by faith. So the gospel, according to Paul, has the power to save, but from what is the question? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So verse 18, we're just going to continue on in the flow of Paul's argument, says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So here's the first thing that Paul says the gospel um, reveals the righteousness of God. We saw that in verses 16 and 17, that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. But then also he says, and, and that's a good thing, that's good news, for the wrath of God is also being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, we're going to come back to this idea of wrath in a little bit and, and a lot more next week. But, but before that, let's pay attention to what the wrath of God is activated by, right? Because I, I think that's what matters. Like, it it's, sounds scary to know that there is such a thing as the wrath of God. Um, but it's important for us to know what is it that actually activates the wrath of God. And Paul says two things. One, ungodliness. And two, unrighteousness. Now, those are both pretty churchy words. So I want to break those down a little bit so that we actually think about what it is Paul's saying activates the wrath of God. So we don't just kind of have this vague general sense of unchurchiness uh, is what activates the wrath of God. So first, ungodliness. Now, in, in its literal sense, this just simply means ungodness or anti-God, just to simply be against God is what Paul is saying. So we're against God, against God's character. And, and I think it's relevant in light of what's happening here in this church, what's happening in our world to ask ourselves, what is, what is the expression of the character of God? What is the human expression of the character of God in our world. Well, we talk about this all the time. Humans. The Imago Dei is God stamping humanity with his character, with his image, with his presence in the world, asking us to be his representatives here on earth. So when people act in ways that mar the Imago Dei in other people or misrepresent God, wrath is revealed. Second, unrighteousness, which again, just simply means unrightness or anti-rightness. Now, here's what's important for us to get. When we talk about rightness, um, we're, we're not, at least biblically speaking, talking about right and wrong in some sort of disconnected principle, like ex existing in a vacuum kind of sense. Right is the thing for which God has created us, right? So we love this word telos, the idea that we have been made for a purpose and that every single thing has been made for a purpose. So for instance, this table here has the telos of holding things up. So I put my Bible on there, I put my paper on there. If the table couldn't hold things up, it would not be living up to its telos, right? So here's where this can get, uh, uh, this can start to reveal the wrath of God. The telos of this table is to hold my Bible and my notes. If I then took this table and instead of using it for its purpose, for its telos, and I started whipping it around at people and trying to smack people on the head with it, I would be doing damage to the telos, the purpose of this table, right? So when Paul says 
that the two things that, that activate the wrath of God are ungodliness or a disrespect or a marring of God and God's character and the expression of God's character and anti-rightness or not using things according to their purpose or the reason for which God created them, we, we begin to kind of see this picture emerge that's less of this vague sense of ungodliness and unrighteousness, which just sounds like vague and churchy and I don't know what it means, to go, oh, I see. God's wrath is activated by a, a misuse of God's people, a, a, mis, a misrepresentation of God's character, and, and a misuse of God's purposes, or the purposes for which God created things, right? So uh, in Genesis 1, we're given what theologians call the cultural mandate, which is that God called men and women to co-create, care for, protect, and cultivate the rest of creation. That was our purpose, right? And so when we get away from that and we become kind of anti, we become destructive rather than cultivating, then God's wrath begins to be revealed. So according to Paul, Actions that are anti-God and anti-purposes of God or anti-manifestation uh, uh, or reflection of God will activate God's wrath. And that wrath, the, that, those actions have three main consequences according to this section. So let's read, uh, continue to read in verse 18. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So let's hear what, what Paul is saying here. That knowledge of God is plain, has been made plain in creation. This is what theologians call general revelation, right? That God has revealed himself, at least in a general way, through the things that he has made. So we would be able to then look at the world around us, at people and rivers and forests and whatever, and go, oh, okay, I can infer some general things about who God is, right? And this is why we call it general revelation. Scriptures are specific revelation, and this is general revelation, or sometimes they call it special revelation, right? So, general revelation gives us enough information about God. What does Paul say, though? He says, what has happened is, and what, what activates this wrath guard, or what, what's, what's kind of the product of ungodliness and unrighteousness, is that this suppresses what is true by primarily misattributing the world around us and everything we see, not attributing it to God, but attributing it to other things, primarily other people. How do we see this, okay? Let's take Plato's transcendentals. Now, maybe you've never heard that phrase, but you've certainly heard what they are. We, we hear this as your big, like kind of capital L liberal ideals of the good, the true, and the beautiful, right? These are ideals that almost everyone would affirm, that there is such a thing as the good, the true, and the beautiful, and that we as a society should pursue those things. They have a long history. Uh, Aquinas talked a lot about them, but rooted in Plato. Okay, so the good, the true, and the beautiful. So 
let's use Paul's words and the transcendentals as a test of Paul's words. That Paul basically goes, we all think these things are true, but we misattribute them, right? So start with the good. We would often, and, and many of our friends that are not people of faith would talk about things that are good over against things that are evil. So, for instance, in, especially in this moment, the idea of human rights is a huge deal, and racism in particular, huge deal. And so we, as Christians, would then perhaps challenge the attribution of those things and go, okay, so we would say there is such a thing as ethics, and we would say there is such a thing as the good, and if there is the good, then there is the evil. And so, for instance, how do we define um, kind of the foundation for human rights and dignity? Where does that come from? Upon what idea do you build those human rights? Okay, the true not just true and false in kind of an empirical sense, but truly true. What the, the source of all truth, things that are capital T truth, that are wisdom that we live our lives by, that are not just kind of pragmatic means of making our way through the world, but are the big truths of the world that in fact transcend pragmatics that we would say, no, even when it's hard, we should still abide by those truths. And to which I would just ask, where do you get those truths? Where, where is their source? Where do you see them? Where, what is the beginning? Where, who articulated them with such authority that they got to be capital T truths? And the beautiful, we seek and recognize and celebrate beauty as such, right? Like not just to say that thing is beautiful or that thing is beautiful, but to, we talk about beauty as a thing and go, yes, we affirm that beauty is a thing. Well, this is one of my favorite ideas that God has created us in such a way that we can look out into the world and see the forests and the streams and the rivers and the mountains and all the things. And we are filled with awe when we see them. Now, God didn't have to create us that way. Right? Like he, he could have given us a very utilitarian uh, approach to the world where we go, good, I'm glad that mountain is there. That's useful for us to get fresh water. Right? Or we go, oh, I'm so glad that, that, uh, that forest exists so that it can suck up our carbon dioxide and give us oxygen. I'm like 85% sure that's how that works. But we, we might have like just a purely utilitarian approach to the world, but God hasn't done that. Like he wired us in such a way that we're able to look at those mountains and look at those forests and yes, appreciate their utilitarian uh, a contribution to our world. But then we can also go, and they're beautiful. And I want to walk in that forest and I want to let other people climb that mountain. And like, I'm glad those things happen. And there's something in me that I would say testifies to God's creative work in the world, but oftentimes those who do not honor God will misattribute to other things. For instance, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the uh, very popular scientist, says this, the problem, often not discovered until late in life, is that when you look for things in life like love, meaning, and motivation, it implies they are sitting behind a tree or under a rock. The most successful people in life recognize that in life, they create their own love. 
They manufacture their own meaning. They generate their own motivation. Okay, so notice what he's saying here, right? First, he's saying we are taking credit for love, meaning, and motivation, right? N not to mention beauty, goodness, and truth, but like we, we are the source of that, according to Neil deGrasse Tyson. That we have to, literally, he says, manufacture meaning. That there is no capital L meaning given to us that we have to create it. This is misattribution of this. This is what Paul's talking about, that we suppress the truth about who God is and we actually take credit. But second, it means that there is actually nothing beneath it all. There's no foundation. There's nothing, when we go away, it all goes away. There is no capital M meaning. There's only the meaning that I'm able to manufacture for my life. And when I'm either dead or just simply unable to manufacture meaning, it disappears. So perhaps actually Shakespeare said it best in The Tempest. He says, our revels are now ended these, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind." We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. That even Shakespeare, so many years ago, was able to articulate this idea that if, if indeed there is nothing given in the sense that God has not created such a thing as love or meaning or purpose, but we have to actually manufacture that. And therefore, we are the source of that. And so if we ever break or die, it disappears with us. One of our great modern uh, cultural commentators, a guy named Mark Sayers, says it this way, our culture wants the kingdom without a king. They want the fruit of the kingdom without having to bow to a king. They want to experience and own the good, the true, the beautiful without acknowledging their source. Suppression of the truth is theological plagiarism. It's glorifying the work of God, but taking credit for it yourself. Paul goes, listen, this is, this is how it goes. When, when you begin to act in ungodly, anti-God, so you reject God, and then unrighteous, so you're rejecting the ways and the purposes of God, this is what begins to happen. You suppress what is true, and you misattribute what is obvious, what is good, true, and beautiful, and you take credit for it yourself, which has this terrible, ultimately nihilistic cycle to it, because if in the end it's all just vapor and it only stays up in the air like a balloon being batted around by children, it only stays in the air as long as their attention stays on it. And then it's gone. And then it's gone. Second. Not only does ungodliness and unrighteousness lead to suppression of the truth, it also leads us towards idolatry. Verse 21, 
It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, obviously us modern people don't replace or exchange the image of God with images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles, obviously. But we do substitute in our own ways, don't we? And that's ultimately what idolatry is. Idolatry is substitution. It's swapping out God for some other thing that we will name God. It's exchanging, as Paul says, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for some images resembling some other thing. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why do we worship? Why do we have this insatiable desire to worship even when we're not going to worship God? A couple reasons. One, we're worshipers by nature. This is who we are. It's baked into us. Timothy Keller says it this way. He says, we must worship something. We were created to worship the creator. So if we reject him, we will worship something else. We are telic creatures. That's that telos idea purposed people. We have to live for something. There has to be something with ca- which captures our imagination and our allegiance, which is the resting place of our deepest hopes and which we look to to calm our deepest fears. Whatever that thing is, we worship it and so we serve it. It becomes our bottom line, the thing we cannot live without, defining and validating everything we do. We're made for it. So we just do it over and over and over and over and over. We just replace, 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 replace. We're going to talk about this a bunch next week, so hang tight. Second reason, we want control. So this is why we grasp at things outside of us that seem more powerful than us or seem able to bring about whatever future we want to see, that, that we think these things have the power to bring those things about, but they are not necessarily sovereign over us. We still have some sense of control over them. Now, the, the reality is we don't. We don't actually have control. We become addicted to it, but it feels like the kind of thing we could control, right? Like I I, I joked at the beginning about the Capitol, about Chaz, right? The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, but there's maybe no greater illustration of the constant desire of humans to grab for autonomy, to grab for power, to grab for control. This is yet another vain attempt at control that will inevitably, if it hasn't already, devolve into anarchy and authoritarianism. So we're made to worship. We want control because of the desire, the sin, the fear that's in us. But also we are looking for identity. 
So much of what's happening in our world right now can, can be described or can be explained by um, simply in-group and out-group dynamics. And I, I wish that I could go deeper into this idea, but there is so much in our world right now that, of just people looking around going, okay, what's my tribe and what do I have to say to stay in the tribe? And I have to do all the things that my tribe is doing and saying, even if I have some reservations about some of the things, because if I don't abide by the tribe, then I'll get kicked out of the tribe and I can't be kicked out of the tribe because then if I'm not in the group, then I'm out of the group. And if I'm out of the group, then I got to find a new group. And that's just, that's a lot of work. And so we bow to these things. Now, as usual, C.S. Lewis is way ahead of us, right? He wrote uh, a, a piece called The Inner Ring decades and decades ago, World War II uh, era. And there's this little section in that, that, uh, that little piece that says this. He says, it is not the large lighted rooms or champagne or even scandals about peers and cabinet ministers that he wants. It is the sacred little attic or studio, the heads bent together, the fog of tobacco smoke, and the delicious knowledge that we, we four or five, all huddled beside this stove are the people who know. Your genuine inner ring exists for exclusion. Do you hear that? Does that remind you of anything going on in our world today that literally our group ex exists just to exclude others? There'd be no fun if there were no outsiders. The invisible line would have no meaning unless most people were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is no accident. It is its essence. Idols promise us a people and a place if we will only worship and serve, a trade-off we happily make. It's Aaron Burr in the musical Hamilton saying he just wants to be in the room where it happens. He just wants to be a part of the group. This is why we I, I idolize the things and people around us. We desperately want an identity. And so we will reach for anything that we think can make us in, make us part of the deal. The problem is that idols only know one word, more. It's the only word an idol knows, more. And again, Lewis in Screwtape Letters sums this up so perfectly. He's um, writing from one demon to another. Uh, the, the younger junior demon has asked the senior demon, uh, should I push my patient towards pacifism or patriotism? This is written at the height of the Second World War. And he's going, okay, should I, should I push him towards pacifism and rejecting the war effort or towards patriotism and stepping up into courage? And this has all kinds of application for today, even though we're not in a literal war, it is how are we choosing our sides? Listen to Screwtape's response. It says, whichever he adopts, patriotism or pacifism, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part of his religion. Then, quietly and gradually, nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause. 
in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism or against racism or against protests or against Trump or against Biden or against or against or against. The strategy is the same. It doesn't change. When the cause supplants God as the point of it all, you will worship and serve the cause and God only insofar as it serves the cause. Third consequence of ungodliness and unrighteousness is the wrath of God. Now, before you recoil at the idea of the wrath of God, think with me, okay? Think with me for just a second. God's wrath is aimed at ungodliness and unrighteousness. Anti-God and the image of God and anti the purposes of God, the cultural mandate, the care and cultivation of God's world. How is that wrath any different than the wrath we are seeing expressed on our city streets? God's wrath is against the destruction of the Imago Dei, against his creation, the destruction of his beloved children. The impulse to wrath is the same. Would, would you consider a father unmoved by the mistreatment of his children a good father? Of course not. Inherent in wrath is love. Man, I, I don't care about things I don't care about. I don't get angry about the destruction of things I don't love. Ever. Inherent in wrath is love. God looks down on his creation and goes, listen, when you misattribute the good, the true, and the beautiful, when you misattribute meaning and love and all of these things and you attribute to yourself, it's vapor. It means nothing, which means you miss out on the good, the true, the beautiful, and meaning and love and motivation and purpose. You get none of that, in which case you become a nihilist, which, in which case you've just become like the most selfish, self-oriented, self-gratifying person in the world. God goes, no, I won't let that happen. My wrath will be poured out towards that. And the degree, to the degree you're taking tables and using them as weapons, or worse, you're taking humans and using them as weapons. Yeah, you're going to see wrath. You're going to see wrath. So it, you want God's wrath. You just don't want it aimed at you. So it, it's, it's not wrath you're against per se. It's just wrath you don't like. So there, there's a remarkable irony here, right? That oftentimes, this is a broad generalization, but oftentimes those most against God's wrath unveil their own on the world around them. That we see that right now, that most who are walking our city's streets, who are protesting would say the wrath of God is evil and yet they express their own wrath at the very things oftentimes that God's wrath is against. So all of this brings us back to the beginning. 
the wrath of God is revealed against all of the things that destroy our world, destroy each other, defame the name of God. And that's good news. That if God didn't have wrath for those things, we would be left to our own devices. All of those things could just play out unimpeded without the wrath of God. The better news, though, the, the truly good news of the gospel is that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. So yeah, the wrath of God is revealed, Romans 1.18 says. But Romans 1.16 told us that, that the righteousness of God is revealed in response to it. Because, as it says, because the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness, therefore the righteousness of God had to be unveiled in the gospel. That God looked straight at our idolatry, our willful blindness, our suppression of the truth, and he intervened on our behalf at great cost to himself. That is the full revelation of the righteous character of God. Come and be saved by our good Savior King. Be freed from the slavery of idolatry. Receive sight to be able to see and attribute the good, the true, and the beautiful that God has given us. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we, we lament and we grieve and we mourn all of the many ways that we see our world being broken around us. That the evil that was perpetrated, that, that, was, that, that kind of kicked off this response, that we would be able to condemn that as the evil that it is, grieve and mourn and lament that evil. And Lord, we, we grieve and we mourn and we lament many of the, the responses that were retributive rather than reconciling. But Lord, in, in a world where people act in ungodly and unrighteous ways, and we being worst of all many times, no better. But where there is ungodliness and unrighteousness, there becomes fracture and brokenness and destruction. And the only thing that can heal that is not, not retribution, not more ungodliness, not more unrighteousness, but more righteousness, more godliness, more gospel. We need more and more and more of the revelation of your righteousness. Where Paul said, you revealed your righteousness in response to the ungodliness and unrighteousness of our world. Lord, please continue to reveal your righteousness in the gospel so that we would be healed as a city, as a country, as a world, Lord, under the banner of the gospel. We pray these things in your name. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.